Welcome to the uncanny valley, where the familiar becomes strange, and the truth isn't what it seems. Here, we peel back the layers of reality, uncovering secrets hidden just beneath the surface. Every shadow whispers a story, every silence screams a hidden tale. Join us as we journey into the depths of the unknown, where each turn is a puzzle and every answer leads to more questions. Are you ready to look beyond? Welcome to the Uncanny Valley podcast. I'm Brittany and I'm here with my husband, Dakota. And today we're going to share some short stories of things that we've researched that we just thought were interesting to share. They're more like campfire stories, a little weird, a little spooky, but nothing that really has a definitive ending because we just don't know. And things that were out of place that we couldn't make a full episode on. So we just collected a few of them together and want to tell them. Yeah, I do a lot of research in my history degree. Right now I'm getting a master's degree in history. And sometimes I read really interesting stories that I'm like, I was not expecting that to be in this history book. That is very weird. And this first one is one of those things that was just very odd. I was in a world history seminar class. So basically just reading a million world history books. So I had to read this book called The Miraculous Flying House of Loretto by Karen Velez. And that story in of itself should probably be an episode that we'll do in the future. But basically it was just talking about how Catholicism spread throughout the world through the Jesuits and how this author's theory is that it stems from this house called the Flying House of Loretto, where this house landed in Italy and was apparently the house of Mary, Mary being Jesus's mother Mary, and that's where Jesus grew up, and then became the first church building for the Christians. So like the 12 disciples used it as a church house. And then angels carried it from Israel to a bunch of different places around the world until it landed in Loretto, Italy. And like I said, that'll have to be its own episode because that's actually a lot to get into. But when reading this book, the author mentioned this really interesting story of this man that we're going to call the Flying Friar. So I'm getting this first bit of information from this book called St. Joseph of Cupertino by Angelo Prastovici. And I'm personally not Catholic, but that doesn't mean that I just write everything that's Catholic off or don't believe it just because I personally don't subscribe to that religion. I subscribe to Protestant Christianity and I don't have an answer for this story. It's just weird. I asked my dad, who's a chaplain, if he had ever heard anything like this. He had no idea. And we were doing some research on some biblical software that he has and just couldn't find anything. You've mentioned the story to other biblical theologians who just were like what in the world nothing to talk about or nothing to say about it exactly other than that's really weird yeah so i would have to talk to a catholic theologian yeah or historian who's kind of in that realm to get a better idea so saint joseph of cupertino was a 17th century friar who had a very troubled childhood His father was a carpenter who got into making some bad business deals, would often take on the debt of others. 
which eventually led to the seizure of their home. Now, before I get into this story, a lot of these resources are coming from Catholics and Catholic priests at the time who might have kind of skewed what was written to keep Catholicism looking a certain way or to more so glorify a certain person. So just keep that in mind. But a lot of these stories are just better if you go in with an open mind and not immediately trying to write anything off. So his father fled for asylum while his mom was pregnant and basically ran into a church where the debtors couldn't hurt him. And he left his wife, who was Joseph's mom, who had to flee her home and gave birth to him in a stable by herself. And his father was just then out of the picture. So he just already had a really rough start to his life. And I know a lot of the listeners at home might be thinking this sounds a lot like the story of Jesus Christ, you know, Mary giving birth to him in a stable. So like I was saying a few minutes ago, I don't know the 100% accuracy of these retellings because again, a lot of times they looked for things that related to the Bible. And I'm not saying it couldn't have been true. I mean, she could have lived in a farm town and there was literally only a stable that she could have given birth. But I'm not saying that he is like Jesus Christ at all. And you'll see why <laughs> in just a few minutes. But a lot of these themes do match the Bible. And a lot of Catholics do try to use the Bible to justify some of these things that I'm going to talk about in a second. And her having to give birth on her own, I think could possibly be why Joseph suffered from mental illnesses and issues later on. We don't know if he was born early, how long the umbilical cord could have been, um, if he got stuck or anything. And so she had to give birth on her own. And so I honestly wonder if that isn't the cause of some of his medical issues he runs into. So growing up, Joseph is reported as having a very bad temper and high spirits. His mother was very harsh with him, but also very gentle. So she would kind of gaslight him. What it sounded like from my research is that she was probably very physical with him to try to get him to stop doing the things he was doing, but then would also be very, very sweet. So within the Catholic Church, whenever you want to become a priest, at least back then, as far as I know, the person has to go through a period of training and preparation that a Christian novice or perspective undergoes prior to taking their vows in order to discern whether or not they are called to this vow of serving a religious life. So if you wanted to become a priest, you have to go through this kind of rough patch in order to make sure that this is what God called on your life. And like I said, I don't know if they still go through this, but in the 17th century they did. And this usually involved very intense prayer, being tested by others to see if you're worthy enough to take your vows at the end of this period. But Joseph would say that his mother was so harsh that he already basically passed the test needed to become a priest. When Joseph was eight years old, he experienced the first of what is called ecstasies. And this is what is described as emotional or religious frenzy or trance-like state, originally one involving an experience of mystic self-transcendence. So what basically when he was at school, somebody would play a musical instrument like an organ or sing a certain song and he would remain immovable with his eyes raised towards heaven and his lips parted. So almost like he was in this trance that music or religious things would put him into. And while in school, Joseph began to suffer from very painful ulcers and eventually was unable to walk. 
His mom would have to carry him to and from mass every morning. And then a local healer tried to operate on his ulcers, but was having no success. Until one day, the healer had taken earning oil from a lamp before an image of the Virgin Mary and applied it to one of his ulcers. And then miraculously, he was relieved from the pain and was healed so much that he was able to walk from the church to Copertino, which was a nine mile walk from where the healer was. And because of his healing, he became even more zealous in his love for God and really wanted to dedicate his life to serving him. In his youth, he became an apprentice to a shoemaker and began frequently visiting various churches and offering his assistance to them during mass. And during this time of his life, he started to get more brutal with his dedication to God. Like a lot of people in the early church would do very extreme things in order to prove their dedication to God. He started wearing a psyllis, which is a painful device that you wear around your neck that has spikes digging into your skin. And this was worn as a way to show penance and like basically repenting for being a sinner. He also gave up meat and would only eat vegetables with the addition of the herb wormwood, which is a very bitter and gross tasting plant to make his food taste gross on purpose. And something that the author noted was that it was actually an anti-inflammation herb. So it probably helped with his chronic, yeah, his chronic pain and ulcers, but he didn't know that he was doing it to make it gross. Yeah. (laughs) Basically, he was self-harming himself. Sometimes he would go on fast for up to three days at a time. And a lot of the other priests who were writing about him said they didn't know if he was actually doing this on purpose or if he just would forget to eat because whenever they would ask him of it, he would just say, I did not think of it. So he just wasn't thinking about food and was probably so dedicated to just praying all day that he just literally forgot to eat. Due to his growing devotion, at around 17 years old, Joseph wanted to leave the, quote, deceitful world, end quote, and be closer to God. He tried to join religious orders and was accepted as a novice for the provincial of Cappuccini's and was employed to the kitchen. (laughs) (laughs) The pepperoncini. As a pepperoncini. As head pepperoncini. (laughs) Um, However, Joseph wasn't very good at his job. He couldn't distinguish between the different types of bread, so he would confuse rye bread with white bread, um, would break dishes by dropping them, and even set pots directly into the fire. Nowadays, some scholars and theologians think he might have had poor eyesight, while others think it might have been because he was in the presence of such holy places that his soul was being pulled closer to God, causing him to be unable to focus on his given tasks. He was eventually dismissed from working there and was so upset that he reportedly said, It seems to me as if my skin was torn off with a habit and my flesh rent from the bones. So this was like a really low point. It impacted him super hard. Yeah, he really wanted to dedicate his life to God and work in these religious places, but he just kept getting kicked out because he just, I think it's because he suffered from a lot of mental illnesses. He might have suffered from this poor eyesight and he just was unable to do a lot of the tasks that they required of him. And then after a few more trials and tribulations, Joseph was able to become a priest for the Order of the Conventuals and became a deacon. deacon. Gosh, (laughs) dyslexia, I put beacon. Deacon by 1627. At this point, Joseph would spend most of his time meditating and would withdraw all association from others. He thought of himself as the most despicable sinner on earth 
and still wearing the psyllis, he would also wear an iron chain around his loins, so like a chastity belt. And he also started to fast a lot more strict without any break, would sleep on a bed made of three boards, worn bearskin, and a pallet of straw so that he would have more time to pray. And his ecstasy state would be triggered by anything from a sound of a bell or a church, music, the name of God, Mary, or of any saint, the life of Christ, a holy picture, or the thought of heaven would send him into contemplation. Nothing, though, could bring him out of these states, not even piercing needles, burning his flesh with candles. Basically, I guess he would be sitting there praying and people would just start stabbing him to see if it would bring him out of it. But the only thing that could bring him out was the voice of one of his superiors telling him to Get out knock of it. it off. Now, some of this information I'm getting is from Early Investigations into the Mystery of Levitation by Michael E. Tim from 2008. On October 4th, 1630, Joseph was helping into a procession of honoring St. Francis of Assis when he began levitating. Interestingly, though, I found out St. Francis of Assis, and I'm sorry, this is all Italian words and I don't know how to pronounce them. So interestingly enough, this saint was also reported for being able to levitate and he was around during 1186 to 1226. He floated from olive to a garden, thus starting <laughs> olive garden. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm going to leave that in there. <laughs> These weren't the only Catholic saints reported to levitate. A century before, St. Peter of Alcantara was said to have soared over trees with his hands crossed over his chest as hundreds of birds gathered around him. St. Thomas Aquinius, St. Ignatius Loyola, St. Teresa of Avilia have all been reported as levitating and there's also reports of several Eastern mystics. Now, when I said St. Teresa, that's not the Mother Teresa you're thinking of now. This was a couple centuries ago. I thought that. I'm like, Mother Teresa's levitating, and I've never heard about that, but it's not the same one that's mm -hmm. popular now. Were these levitations real? St. Joseph, the person that I've been talking about this whole time, he was reported to have levitated for up to seven hours long. And he would just be floating in the sky. He's known as the Flying Friar. And what's really interesting to me is that the Catholic Church still believe their accounts today well there's multiple accounts of his flying though right there's not just one primary source no a bunch of people it. wrote about it and i believe they would try to kick him out because he kept levitating yeah they were tired of him flying around i just can imagine them sitting in mass and somebody starts playing the organ and apparently saint joseph just starts floating above the church yeah <laughs> um and I think a lot of people thought of him as a distraction. They didn't really like what he was doing. Or they didn't know whether or not this power of levitation was holy or was it heretical. Yeah, and I tried to do some of my own research. Like I said, I'm not a Catholic and I'm not very well versed in what Catholics believe. But in the Bible, I couldn't find anything of people levitating in this way. There are instances in the Bible where people get taken into the spiritual realm and are given a vision from God, such as Ezekiel, John in Revelation, Daniel, Moses was on the mountain with God, but none of these accounts in the Bible from anything I could find actually said they were levitating or flying in the sky. Some people were trying to justify this by saying when Jesus walked on the water, he was levitating, but that 
that's not true. He was not levitating. He actually walked on the water. Because in Matthew 14, through 23, it says, Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he dismissed them, he went up a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink and cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why do you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. So none of this points to Jesus levitating. I don't. I think if Jesus was levitating, it would have made that a very specific point. That he was a slightly above the water, but no. not on. Yeah, me and my dad searched for like two hours trying to find anything from his Logos Bible software and that even talks about anybody in the Bible levitating, and I just... Can find, find any anything. account of levitation. Personally, I think these people could have been levitating, but I don't think it was power from God. Because when me and my dad were talking about it, there's nothing of them levitating that would glorify God. They weren't doing it to show the power of God. They would kind of get put into this weird trance, at least with St. Joseph, put into a weird trance and then sent levitating. That doesn't really glorify God. And it doesn't, it's not talked about in the Bible like walking on water when Peter walked with Jesus or Ezekiel seeing the wheel. These things we have biblical references to and can understand why God did these things to a certain extent, but there's no reference to levitating. And usually levitation is done in seances where people are floating above a table. Or things are floating off the table. And there's accounts of demonic possession and levitating. Yeah. So personally, just from all of that. I don't think that these were good. Now, I don't know if they were consciously talking with the devil. It's really hard to know because a lot of these people didn't keep personal diaries. And a lot of these accounts are somebody else's thoughts on the matter as well. They're not exactly the thoughts of him. Like you just said, there's no diary of him saying that he was doing seances to get it or anything so we can only speculate and we only have one true source of information and that's the bible and there's no reference to it and sometimes with a lot of catholic sources it might have been a word of mouthing about this person and then somebody two centuries later finally actually wrote it down so who knows how much the story has changed throughout time Mm -hmm. but like i said i don't necessarily disagree that he was levitating if there's enough accounts saying that and all of the weird instances of them even trying to pierce him with needles or light him on fire to get him out of it i think he probably was in a trance state because who could sit there and pretend like they're not when you're in pain but just a odd story that i've never heard of and i think most protestant christians have never heard of if you're catholic have you ever heard the story or of the other people levitating. And if you have, what do your priests say about it? What's your defense on it? I'm just very curious to know. 
Now we're going to move on to a different story of something more modern of a man named John Zegris, who is basically noted as a very mysterious Japanese man. Yeah, he's known as the man from Tarad. So this is a really strange, out of time... The story goes like this. In July 1954, a well-dressed, middle-aged man arrived at Tokyo's Haneda Airport in Japan. Upon presenting his seemingly authentic passport to custom officials, it showed that he was from a country named Torrid. When asked to point out where Torrid was on the map, he pointed to the Principality of Andorra, situated between France and Spain. Confused, the officials informed him that Andorra was marked on the map, and there was no other country called Torrid at that location or anywhere else. Perplexed, the man claimed that Torrid had existed for over a thousand years, and he had been there earlier for business trips to Japan. His passport appeared genuine, written in French, with visa stamps from various countries. And the man even had a driver's license from Torrid and local currency from his country in his briefcase. What's very strange about this story is that he knew where Japan was and all these other countries. And he had traveled there from somewhere. Yeah, seemingly and- with his passport that was stamped with the countries that he traveled from. And what's even more strange is that he had currency from this non-existent country, which in of itself is already hard enough to fake normal currency. Why would you go through the trouble of faking this currency? That you wouldn't be able to use anywhere. <laughs> you, you can't just go exchange torrid money for yen. No, and the thing that always interests me about this story is how did he get to the airport? That's what I mean. He <laughs> came from somewhere, whether or not he came directly from Torrid or not. It says that his passport was written in French, so I'm assuming the people of Torrid speak French, and that doesn't mean anything other than just that's the local language and whatever timeline that he's supposedly from. Or he could have been, he could have just been issued his passport from. Yeah, France, but he would have had to be a citizen from yeah, France. Yeah, it's really so weird. It's a strange situation. And just because, like I said, it's written in one language doesn't mean anything. It's just the predominant language of that area. Yeah, it's just like we speak English, but we're not in England. Mm -hmm. And Andorra is a real place, but he had never heard of Andorra, right? Yeah, so he pointed where Torrid is, but it was Andorra. And he claimed that he's never heard of Andorra. So he demanded to speak to his embassy and hotel, which he had made prior arrangements with before his trip, which... I've heard that story a few times, and I always think it's weird that... He apparently had reservations at the hotel. Apparently had a reservation at the hotel, but also that there was an embassy in Japan that he thought existed. So, clearly, he was genuinely... If he's demanding to go to his embassy, it would be like if we went to another country. And so, Torrid must have had some sort of claim in these countries, just like an embassy is. You're basically stepping on the soil of that nation. So the local authorities took him, and after lengthy questioning over seemingly genuine documents and baffling claims, immigration officers eventually detained him as a suspicious person. To their shock, at no point was there ever falsified documents, and the man appeared earnestly confused by the reactions of officials about his country that never existed. Or that they would even accuse him of falsifying these documents. Mm -hmm. And there was no proof that... They, they were, were forged. Fake. That's what I mean with the currency. I mean, it's like faking U.S. money. It's already hard enough to fake it. Why would you go through the trouble of making another country's bills and not, like, why would you do that? Well, and especially having the resources to do that back then would be a lot harder. You can't just buy a stamp from Amazon 
to make your own gold coin. <laughs> and this story is kind of a local folklore thing. What I would be interested to know, and I've never heard about this, is whether or not the connecting flight, where did that connecting flight originate from? Did it connect from France or somewhere over there? Or was it a, did it connect from Germany or where did it connect from? That flight had to have come from somewhere. Yeah, somehow he appeared there. The man was then held for weeks while police investigated before a decision could be made about what to do with him. However, mysteriously, one morning, guards discovered his cell empty with no signs of escape. How the man vanished is very puzzling, but there were documented eyewitnesses and evidence of his bizarre claims of coming from a country named Torrid. Now, some skeptics believe the man was an elaborate hoaxer, but others point to the genuine nature of his claims and the documents as evidence. I have no rational explanation. Yeah, it's weird. It's one of these weird, small little folklore stories that there's not really any, even any way to prove it. And there's no, as far as I can find, no primary source on it other than just reports on the news about it. And if you've seen the TV show Fringe, this is the only thing that it reminds me of. And obviously that's a fictional science fiction TV show. But in the show, there's instances where somebody is in one universe and they slip through into the other universe universe and so basically there's two earths that's what the stories usually used as proof of parallel dimensions and i'm on the side of not writing again just writing these things off because there's no scientific proof because i don't think scientific proof is always needed to explain the supernatural and i would be very curious to if anybody has ever before this instance talked about yeah. torrid yeah, and maybe Torrid is a part of Tataria or something. That's what I've been thinking this whole time is, is it some type of Atlantis city that really did exist and we just don't know where they went or what happened to it? It's a very strange story and there's really honestly not much more on it other than that. Well, and the fact that he just disappeared from his cell, that's what makes me think of Fringe because there's an episode where a man is in a German prison and he gets basically a machine that can not time travel but teleport him to a different mm -hmm. part and so there's no he didn't break through the locks on his cell but he's anything. just there and then he's not yeah it's really weird it's just a really strange story but an interesting one and just an interesting thought experiment if nothing else well and he's not the only one next week we're going to talk about some more weird occurrences of people being from somewhere unknown to us so let us know down below in the comments what you think of this story. Do you believe the Torrid Man or the Flying Friar? Have you ever heard these stories before or does it remind you of any other stories? Let us know down below. And also, if you have a story that you would like to share, you're on a podcast or you would like to be on our podcast, go ahead and leave us a comment or private message us on Facebook or Instagram. That's the best way to get in contact with us and we would love to potentially have you on our show. Thank you so much for listening and we will see you guys next week.